Hello everyone, and welcome to the Drunken Storytellers podcast. I'm going to call this a new season. There's been a break, things have happened, life has changed, I've not had time to do anything, so... I think this new short season, starting on the spooky season, heading through Christmas, we shall be telling tales. Tales of woe, tales of the dark gothic horror because currently my life is a little bit busy I don't have much time to do much research and and look into tales as any of you who know who are following me through Twitter I am currently a when this goes out the Kickstarter will have gone live I have just written a book on divination in RPGs So looking at the historical and religious forms of divination in the real world and how we can use these as inspiration for RPGs. Hence the lack of episodes over the last couple of months. It's taken up a lot of my time and it's going to take up a lot more time over the next couple of weeks as we kind of polish things off. It is mostly finished. We are going live on October the 27th. 2022 uh, and we are running for four weeks so it will be finishing on October the 20 no not October November the 24th so please do go check that out it is called Eye to the Void by Hive Mind Games over on Kickstarter there'll be links in the show notes to that uh, but because of that um, I do have a lot of information to talk to about divination but you're going to have to buy the book to work out what it is. Once the Kickstarter finishes, it will it will be produced very, very quickly. So if you back on PDF or book level, you will get it very, very quickly after the Kickstarter ends. It will be not it's not one. It's not going to be one of these. You've got to wait three years for the book to come out kind of thing. It will come out very quickly. We're hoping by the end of the year. But as a result of that, I've had no time to look at other things and fun things from around the world. Well, it is spooky season. It is October. So I think we'll start with a two-part story. So I do quite often like to tell stories from a few few individual writers. So we've had M.R. James, we've had Algernon Blackwood and... Uh, of Cardio Hearn quite regularly on this podcast but today we're going to go to another author a very famous author someone who is quite well known for probably the most famous investigator in the world Arthur Conan Doyle we're going to go to some of his work but we're not going to look at Sherlock Holmes we're going to go into something a little bit spookier A little bit weirder, another tale of his, one that is ancient. And this is the tale of lot number 249. And the telling of this tale comes from Arthur Conan Doyle, written in 1892, and can be found on the Gutenberg Project ebook site. So sit back, grab yourself a drink, and enjoy the horror. Of dealings of Edward Bellingham and William Monkhouse Lee, and of the cause of the great teller of Avacombe Smith, it may be that no absolute and final judgment will ever be delivered. It is true that we have the full and clear narrative of Smith himself, and such corroboration as he could look for from Thomas Stiles, the servant from Reverend Plumtree Peterson, fellow of Olds, and from such other people as chanced to gain some passing glance at this or that incident in singular chain of events. Yet, in the main, the story must rest upon Smith alone, and the most will think that it is more likely than one brave. However, outwardly sane has some subtle warp in its texture, some strange flaw in its workings, than that the path of nature has been overstepped in open day and so famed a centre of learning and light as the University of Oxford. 
Yet, when we think how narrow and how devious this path of nature is, how dimly we can trace it, for all our lamps of science, and how, from the darkness which girds it round great and terrible possibilities loom ever shadowily, shadowly upwards, it is a bold and confident man who will put a limit to the strange bypaths into which the human spirit may wander. In a certain wing of what we will call Old College in Oxford, there is a corner turret of exceeding great age. The heavy arch which spans the open door has bent downwards in the centre under the weight of years, and the grey lichen blotched blocks of stone are bound and knitted together with writhes and strands of ivy, as though the old mother had sat herself to brace them against the wind and wind. For a door, a stone stair curves upwards spirally, passing two landings and terminating in a third. Its steps, all shapeless and hollowed by the tread of so many generations of the seekers after knowledge. Life has flowed like water down this winding stair, and water-like has left these smooth, worn groves behind it. From the long-gowned pedantic scholars of Plagent days down to the young bloods of later age, how full and strong have been the tide of young English life. And what was left now of all these hopes, those strivings, those fairy energies, save here and there in some old world churchyard a few scratches upon a stone, and perchance a handful of dust in a mouldering coffin. Yet, here where the silent stair and grey old wall, with bend and saltire and many another heraldic device still to be read upon its surface, like grotesque shadows thrown back from the days that had passed. In the month of May, in the year 1884, three young men occupied the set of rooms which opened onto the separate landings of the old stair. Each set consisted simply of a sitting room and a bedroom, while the two corresponding rooms upon the ground floor were used, the one as the coal cellar and the other as the living room of the servant, or scout, Thomas Stiles, whose duty it was to wait upon the three men above him. To right and to left was a line of lecture rooms and of offices, so that the dwellers in the old turret enjoyed a certain seclusion, which made the chambers popular among the more studious undergraduates. Such were the three who occupied them now. Abercrombie Smith above, Edward Bellingham beneath him, and William Monkhouse Lee upon the lowest story. It was ten o'clock on a bright spring night, and Abercrombie Smith lay back in his armchair, his feet upon the fender and his briar root pipe between his lips, in a similar chair, and equally at ease, there lounged on the other side of the fireplace his old school friend, Jeffro Hasty. Both men were in flannels, for they had spent their evening upon the river. But apart from their dress, no one could look at their hard-cut, alert faces without seeing that they were open-air men, men whose minds and tastes turned naturally to all that there was manly and robust. Hasty, indeed, was stroke of his college boat, and Smith was an even better oar, but a coming examination had already cast its shadow over him and held him to his work, save for the few hours a week which health demanded. A litter of medical books upon the table with scattered bones, models and anatomical plates pointed to the extent as well as the nature of his studies, while a cup of single sticks and a set of boxing gloves above the mantelpiece hinted at the means by which, with Hasty's help, he might take his exercise in its most compressed and least distant form. They knew each other well, so well that they could sit now in that soothing silence which is very highest development of companionship. Have some whisky, said Abercrombie Smith, at last between two cloudbursts. There's scotch in the jug and Irish in the bottle. No thanks, I'm for the skulls. I don't liquor when I'm training. How about you? I'm reading hard. I think it's best to leave it alone. Hasty nodded, and they relapsed into contented silence. By the way, Smith, 
asked Hasty presently. Have you made the acquaintance of either of the fellows of your stair yet? Just a nod when we pass, nothing more. Hmm. I should be inclined to let it stand at that. I know nothing of them both. Not much, but as much as I want. I don't think I should take them to my bosom if I were you. Not that there's much amiss with Monkhouse Lee. Meaning the thin one? Precisely. He's a gentlemanly little fella. I don't think there is any vice in him, but then you can't know him without knowing Bellingham. Meaning the fat one? Yes, the fat one. And he's a man whom I, for one, would rather not know. Abercrombie Smith raised his eyebrows and glanced across at his companion. What's up then? he asked. Drink? Cards? Cad? You used not to be censorious. Yeah. You evidently don't know the man, or you wouldn't ask. There's something damnable about him, something reptilian. My gorge always rises at him. I should put him down as a man with secret vices, an evil liver. He's no fool, though. They say he is one of the best men in his line that they have ever had at the college. Medicinal classics. Eastern languages. He's a demon of them. Chillingworth met him somewhere above his second cataract last long, and he told him that he just prattled to the Arabs as if he had been born and nursed and winged among them. He talked Coptic to the Copts, and Hebrew to the Jews, and Arabic to the Bedouins, and they were all really ready to kiss the hem of his frock coat. They were some old hermit jonies up in those parts who sit on the rocks and scowl and spit at the casual stranger. Well, when they saw this chap Bellingham, before he had said five words, they just lay down on their bellies and wriggled. Chillingworth said that he'd never saw anything like it. Bellingham seemed to take it as his right, too, and strutted among them and talked down to them like a Dutch uncle. Pretty good for an undergrad of olds, wasn't it? Why do you say you can't know Lee without no Bellingham? Because Bellingham is engaged to his sister Evelyn. Such a bright little girl, Smith. I know the whole family well. It's disgusting to see that brute with her. A toad and a dove. That's what they always remind me of. Abercombe Smith grinned and knocked his ashes out of his side of the grate. Mm. You show every card in your hand, old chap, said he. What a prejudiced, green-eyed, evil-thinking old man it is. You have really nothing against the fellow except that. Well, I, I've known her ever since she was as long as that cherry wood pipe, and I don't like to think... I, and I don't like to see her taking her risks. And it is a risk. He looks beastly. And he has a beastly temper. A venomous temper. You remember his row with Long Norton? No, you always forget that I'm a freshman. Ah, yes. It was last winter, of course. Well, do you know the towpath along by the river? There were several fellows going along it, Bellingham in front, when they came on an old market woman coming the other way. It had been raining. You know what those fields are like when it rains. And the path between the river and a great puddle, that was nearly as broad. Well, what does this swine do but keep the path and push the old girl into the mud? where she and her marketings came to a terrible grief. It was a blackguard thing to do, and Long Norton, who is as gentle as a fellow has ever stepped, told him what he thought of it. One word led to another, and it ended in Norton laying his stick across the fellow's shoulders. There was a juice of a fuss about it, and it was a treat to see the way in which Bellingham looks at Norton when they meet now. By Jove, Smith. It's nearly eleven o'clock. No hurry. Light your pipe again. Not I. I'm, I'm supposed to be training. Here, I've, I've been sitting gossiping when I ought to have been safely tucked up. I'll borrow your skull, if you can share it. Williams has had mine for a month. I'll take the little bones out of your ear too, if you're sure you won't need them. Thanks very much. Never mind a bag. 
I can carry them very well under my arm. Good night, my son, and take my tip as to your neighbour. When Hasty, bearing his anatomical plunder, had clattered off down the winding stair, Abercrombie Smith hurled his pipe into the waste paper basket and, drawing his chair nearer to the lamp, plunged into a formidable green-covered volume, adorned with great coloured maps of that strange internal kingdom of which we were hapless and helpless monarchs. Though a freshman at Oxford, the student was not so into medicine, for he had worked for four years at Glasgow and at Berlin, and this coming examination would place him firmly as a member of his profession. With his firm mouth, broad forehead and clear-cut, somewhat hard-featured face, he was a man who, if he had no brilliant talent, was yet so dogged, so patient and so strong that he might in the end overtop a more shadowy genius. A man who can hold his own among Scotsmen and North Germans is not a man to be easily set back. Smith had left a name at Glasgow and at Berlin, and was bent now upon doing as much at Oxford, if hard work and devotion could accomplish it. He sat reading for about an hour, and the hands of a noisy carriage clock upon the side table were rapidly closing upon the twelve, when a sudden sound fell upon the student's ear. A sharp, rather shrill sound, like the hissing intake of a man's breath who's gasped under some strong emotion. Smith laid down his book and slanted his ear to listen. There was no one on either side or above him, so that the interruption came certainly from the neighbour beneath, the same neighbour of who Hasty had given so unsavoury an account. Smith knew him only as a flabby, pale-faced man with silent and studious habits, a man whose lamp threw a golden bar from the old turret even after he had extinguished his own. This community in lateness had formed a certain silent bond between them. It was soothing to Smith when the hour stole on towards dawning to feel that there was another so close, who set as small a value upon his sleep as he did. Even now, as his thoughts turned toward him, Smith's feelings were kindly. Hasty was a good fellow, but he was rough, strong-fibred, with no imagination or sympathy. He could not tolerate departures from what he looked upon as the model type of manliness. If a man could not be measured by a public school standard, then he was beyond the pale with Hasty. Like so many who are themselves robust, he was apt to confuse the constitution with the character, to ascribe to want of principle what was really a want of circulation. Smith, his stronger mind, knew his friend's habit, and made allowance for it now as his thoughts turned towards the man beneath. There was no return of the singular sound, and Smith was about to return to his work once more, when suddenly there broke out in the silence of the night a hoarse cry, a positive scream, the call of a man who is moved and shaken beyond all control. Smith sprang out of his chair and dropped his book. He was a man of fairly firm fibre, but there was something in this sudden, uncontrollable shriek of horror which chilled his blood and pringled his skin. Coming in such a place and at such an hour, it brought a thousand fantastic possibilities into his head. Should he rush down, or was it better to wait? He had all the national hatred of making a scene, and he knew so little of his neighbour that he would not lightly intrude upon his affairs. For a moment he stood in doubt, and even as he balanced the matter there was a quick rattle of footsteps upon the stairs, and a young monk Housley, half-dressed as white as ashes, burst into his room. Come down! he gasped. Bellingham's ill! Abercrombie Smith followed him closely downstairs into the sitting room which was beneath his own and intent as he was upon the matter in hand, he could not but take an amazed glance around him as he crossed the threshold. It was such a chamber as he had ever seen before, a museum rather than a study. Walls and ceiling were thickly covered with a thousand strange relics from Egypt and the East. 
Tall, angular figures bearing burdens or weapons stalked in an uncouth frieze around the apartments. Above were bull-headed, stork-headed, cat-headed, owl-headed statues and viper-crowned, almond-eyed monarchs. And strange beetle-like deities cut out of the blue Egyptian lapis lazuli. Horus and Isis and Osiris peeped down upon every niche and shelf, while across the ceiling a true son of the old Nile, a great hanging-jawed crocodile, was slung in a double noose. In the centre of this singular chamber was a large square table, littered with papers and bottles and dried leaves of some graceful palm-like plant. These varied objects had all been heaped together in order to make room for a mummy case, which had been conveyed from the wall, as was evident from the gap there, and laid across the front of the table. The mummy itself, a horrid, black, withered thing, like a charred head on a gnarled brush, was lying half out of the case with its claw-like hand and bony forearm resting upon the table. Propped up against the sarcophagus was an old yellow scroll of papyrus, and in front of it, in a wooden armchair, sat the owner of the room, his head thrown back, his widely opened eyes directed in a horrified stare to the crocodile above him, and his blue, thick lips puffing loudly with every expiration. My God, he's dying! cried Monk Lee distractedly. He was a slim, handsome young fellow, olive-skinned and dark-eyed, of a Spanish rather than of an English type, with a Celtic intensity of a manner which contrasted with the Saxon phlegm of, his Ab of Abercombe Smith. Only a faint, I think, said the medical student. Just give me a hand with him. You take his feet. Now, go on to the sofa. Can you kick all those little wooden devils off? Ooh, what a litter it is. Now, he, he will be alright if we undo his collar and give him some water. What has he been up to at all? Uh, I don't know. I heard him cry out. I ran up. I know him pretty well, you know. It's, it is very good of you to come down. His heart is going like a pair of castanets, said Smith, laying his hand on the breast of an unconscious man. He seems to me to be frightened all to pieces. Chuck the water over him. <laughs> what a face he has got on him. It was indeed a strange and repellent face, for colour and outline were equally unnatural. It was white, not with the ordinary pallor of fear but with an absolutely bloodless white, like the underside of a soul. He was very fat, but gave the impression of having at some time been considerably fatter, for his skin hung loosely in creases and folds, and was shot with a meshwork of wrinkles. Short, stubbly brown hair bristled up from his scalp with a pair of thick, wrinkled ears protruding at either side. His light grey eyes were still open, the pupils dilated and balls projecting in a fixed and horrid stare. It seemed to Smith, as he looked down upon him, that he had never seen nature's danger signals flying so plainly upon a man's countenance, and his thoughts turned more seriously to the warning which Hasty had given him an hour before. What the deuce can have frightened him so? he asked. It's the mummy! The mummy? How, then? I don't know. It's it's beastly and morbid. I wish he would drop it. It's the second fright he has given me. It was the same last winter. I found him just like this, with that horrid thing in front of him. What does he want with the mummy, then? Oh, he's a crank, you know. It's, it's his hobby. He knows more about these things than any man in England. But I wish he wouldn't. Ah, he's beginning to come, too. A faint tinge of colour had begun to steal back into Bellingham's ghastly cheeks, and his eyelids shivered like a sail after a calm. He clasped and unclasped his hands, drew a long, thin breath between his teeth, and suddenly, jerking up his head, 
threw a glance of recognition around him. As his eyes fell upon the mummy, he sprang off the sofa, seized the roll of papyrus, threw it into a drawer, turned the key, and then staggered back onto the sofa. What's up? he asked. What do you chaps want? You've been shrieking out and making no end of a fuss, said Monk Housley. If our neighbour here from above hadn't come down, I'm sure you wouldn't have... I'm sure I don't know what I should have done with you. Ah, uh, it's Abercrombie Smith, said Bellingham, glancing up at him. How very good of you to come. What a fool I am. Oh God, what a fool I am. He shrunk his head into his hands and burst into a peal after peal of hysterical laughter. Look here, and drop it, cried Smith, shaking him roughly by the shoulders. Your nerves are a jingle. You must drop these little midnight games with mummies, or you'll be going off your chump. You're all wise now. I wonder, said Bellingham, whether you would be as cool as I am if you had seen. What then? Oh, nothing. I meant that I wonder if you would sit up at night with a mummy without trying your nerves. I have no doubt that you are right, quite right. I dare say that I have been taking it out of myself too much lately. But I am all right now. Please, please don't go, though. Just wait a few minutes until I am quite myself. This room is, is very close, remarked Lee, throwing open a window and letting in the cool night air. It's balsamic resin, said Bellingham. He lifted up one of the dried palmate leaves from the table and frizzled it over the chimney of the lamp. It broke away into a heavy smoke wreaths and a pungent biting odour filled with the chamber. It's sacred plant, the plant of the priests, he remarked. Do you know nothing of Eastern languages, Smith? Nothing at all, not a word. The answer seemed to lift a weight from the Egyptologist's mind. By the way, he continued, how long was it from the time that you ran down until I came to my senses? Not long, some four or five minutes. Oh, I thought it could not be very long, said he, drawing a long breath. But what a strange thing unconsciousness is. There is no measurement to it. I could not tell from my own sensations if it was seconds or weeks. Not that gentleman on the table was packed up in the days of the 11th dynasty some 40 centuries ago. And yet, if he could find his tongue, he could tell us what this lapse of time has been but closing of the eyes and reopening of them. He's a singularly fine mummy, Smith. Smith stepped over the table and looked down with a professional eye at the black and twisted form in front of him. The features though horribly discovered, were perfect, and two little nut-like eyes still lurked in the depths of the black, hollow sockets. The blotched skin was drawn tightly from bone to bone, and a tangled wrap of black coarse hair fell over his ears. Two thin teeth, like those of a rat, overlay the shriveled lower lip. In its crouching position with bent joints and craned head, there was a suggestion of energy about the horrid thing which made Smith's gorge rise. The gaunt ribs with the parchment-like covering were exposed, and the sunken, laden-hued abdomen with a long slit where the embalmer had left his mark. But the lower limbs were wrapped round with coarse yellow bandages and a little clove-like pieces of myrrh and of cassia were sprinkled over the body, and they scattered on the inside of the case. I don't know his name, said Bellingham, passing his hand over the shriveled head. You see, the outer sarcophagus with the inscriptions is missing. Plot 249 is all the title he has now. You see it printed on his case. This was his number, in this auction at which I picked him up. He has been a very pretty sort of fellow in this day, remarked Abercrombie. He has been a giant. His mummy is six feet seven in length, 
and that would be a giant over here, for they were never a very robust race. Feel these great knotted bones too, he would be a nasty fellow to tackle. And perhaps these very hands helped to build the stones into the pyramids, suggested Monkhouse Lee, looking down with disgust in his eyes at the crooked, unclean talons. No fear, this fellow has been pickled in natron and looked after in the most approved styles. They did not serve hudsmans in that fashion. Salt or bitumen was enough for them. It has been calculated that this sort of thing cost about £730 in our money. Our friend was a noble at the least. What do you make of that small inscription near his feet, Smith? I told you that I know no eastern tongue. Ah, so you did. It is the name of the embalmer, I take it. A very conscientious worker he must have been. I wonder how many modern works will survive 4,000 years. He kept on speaking lightly and rapidly, but it was evident to Abercombe Smith that he was still palpitating with fear. His hand shook, his lower lip trembled, and look where he would, his eyes always came sliding to his gruesome companion. Though, for his fear, however, there was a suspicion of triumph in his tone and manner. His eyes shone and his footsteps as he paced round the room were brisk and jaunty. He gave the impression of a man who has gone through an ordeal, the marks of which he still bears upon him, but which has helped him to his end. You're not going yet, he cried as Smith rose from the sofa. At the prospect of solitude, his fears seemed to crowd back upon him, and he stretched out a hand to detain him. Yes, I must go. I have my own work to do. You're right now. I think that with your nervous system, you should take up some less morbid study. Oh, I am not nervous as a rule, and I have unwrapped mummies before. You fainted last time, observed Monkhousley. Oh, yes, so I did well. I must have a nerve tonic or a course of electricity. You are not going, Lee. I'll do whatever you wish, Ned. Then I'll come down with you and have a shakedown on your sofa. Good night, Smith. I am so sorry to have disturbed you with my foolishness. They shook hands, and as the medical student stumbled up the spiral and irregular stair, he heard a key turn in the door, and the steps of his two new acquaintances descended to the lower floor. In this strange way began the acquaintance between Edward Bellingham and Abercrombie Smith, an acquaintance which the latter at least had no desire to push forward. Bellingham, however, appeared to have taken a fancy to his rough-spoken neighbour, and made his advances in such a way that he could hardly be repulsed with absolute brutality. Twice he had called to thank Smith for his assistance, and many times afterwards he looked in with books, papers, and such other civilities as two bachelor neighbours can offer each other. He was, as Smith soon found, a man of wide reading, with Catholic tastes and extraordinary memory. His manner, too, was so pleasing and suave that one came after a time to overlook his repellent appearance. For a jaded and wearied man, he was no unpleasant companion, and Smith found himself, after a time, looking forward to his visits and even returning them. Clever as he undoubtedly was, however, the medical student seemed to detect a dash of insanity in the man. He broke out at times into a high, inflated style of talk, which was in contrast with the simplicity of his life. It's a wonderful thing, he cried. To feel that one can command the powers of good and of evil, a ministering angel or of a demon of vengeance. And again, of Monkhouse Lee, he said, and Lee is a good fellow, an honest fellow, but he is without strength or ambition. He would not make it fit partner for a man with great enterprise. He would not make a fit partner for me. And at such hints and innuendos, Dolid Smith, puffing solemnly at his pipe, would simply raise an eyebrow and shake his head. 
with little interjections of medical wisdom as to the early hours and fresher air. One habit Bellingham had developed of late, which Smith knew to be a frequent herald of a weakening mind. He appeared to be forever talking to himself. At late hours of the night, when there could be no visitor with him, Smith could hear his voice beneath him in a low, muffled monologue, sunk almost to a whisper, and yet very audible in the silence. His solitary babbling annoyed and distracted the student, so that he spoke more than once to his neighbour about it. Bellingham, however, flushed up at the charge, denied curtly that he had uttered a sound. Indeed, he showed more annoyance over the matter than the occasion seemed to demand. Had Abercrombie Smith had any doubt as to his own ears, he had not to go far to find corroboration. Tom Stiles, the little wrinkled man-servant who attended to the wants of the lodgers in the turret for a longer time than any man's memory could carry him, was sorely put to over the same matter. If you please, sir, said he as he tidied down the top chamber one morning, do you think Mr Bellingham is all right, sir? All right, Stiles? Yes, sir. Right in the head, sir. Why should he not be then? Well, I don't know, sir. His habits has changed as late. He's not the same man he used to be. Though, I make free to say that he was never quite one of my gentlemen, like Mr Hastie or yourself, sir. He's stuck to talking to himself or something awful. I wonder if it don't disturb you. I don't know what to make of him, sir. I don't know what business is his of yours, Styles. Well, I take an interest, Mr Smith. It may be forward of me, but I can't help it. I feel sometimes as if I was mother and father to you, young gentleman. It all falls on me when things go wrong and the relations come. But... Mr. Bellingham, sir, I want to know what it is that walks about his room sometimes when he's out and when the door's locked on the outside. You're talking nonsense, Styles. Maybe so, sir. I heard it more than once with my own ears. Rubbish, Styles. Very good, sir. You ring the bell if you want me. Abercrombie Smith gave little heed to the gossip of the old man-servant, but a small incident occurred a few days later which left an unpleasant effect upon his mind and brought the words of Styles forcibly to his memory. Bellingham had come to see him late one night and was entertaining him with an interesting account of the rock tombs of the Bene Hassan in Upper Egypt, when Smith, whose hearing was remarkably acute, distinctly heard the sound of a door opening on the landing below. There's some fellow gone in or out of your room, he remarked. Bellingham sprang up and stood helpless for a moment with an expression of a man who is half incredulous and half afraid. I surely locked it. I'm almost positive that I locked it, he stammered. No, no one could have opened it. Why? I hear someone coming up the steps now, said Smith. Bellingham rushed out through the door, slammed it loudly behind him and hurried down the stairs. About halfway down, Smith heard him stop and thought he caught the sound of whispering. A moment later, the door beneath him shut. A key creaked in the lock and Bellingham, with beads of moisture upon his pale face, ascended the stairs once more and re-entered the room. It's all right, he said, throwing himself down in a chair. It was that fool of a dog. He'd pushed open the door. I don't know how I can come to forget to lock it. I didn't know you kept a dog, said Smith, looking very thoughtfully at the disturbed face of his companion. Yes, I have I have had him long. I must get rid of him. He's a great nuisance. Yeah, he must be, if you find him so hard to shut him up. But I should have thought that shutting the door would have been enough without locking it. I want to prevent old Styles from letting him out. He's of some value, you know, and it would be awkward to lose him. Ah, oh, 
I'm a bit of a dog fancier myself, said Smith, still gazing hard at his companion from the corner of his eyes. Perhaps you'll let me have a look at it. Oh, certainly, but I'm afraid it cannot be tonight. I have an appointment. Is that clock right? Then I'm a quarter an hour late already. You'll excuse me, I'm sure. He picked up his cap and hurried from the room. In spite of his appointment, Smith heard him re-enter his own chamber and lock his door upon the inside. This interview left a disagreeable impression upon the medical student's mind. Bellingham had lied to him, and lied so clumsily that it looked as if he had desperate reasons for concealing the truth. Smith knew that his neighbour had no dog. He knew, also, that the step which he had heard upon the stairs was not a step of an animal. But if it were not, then what could it be? There was old style statement about the something which used to pace the room at times when the owner was absent. Could it be a woman? Smith rather inclined to the view. If so, it would mean disgrace and expulsion to Bellingham if it were discovered by the authorities, so that his anxiety and falsehoods might be accounted for. And yet, if it was inconceivable that an undergraduate could keep a woman in his rooms without being instantly detected, made the explanation what it might, there was something ugly about it, and Smith determined, as he turned to his books, to discourage all further attempts at intimacy on the part of his soft-spoken and ill-favoured neighbour. But his work was destined to interruption that night. He had hardly caught up on the broken threads when a firm, heavy footfall came three steps at a time from below, and Hasty, in blazer and flannels, burst into his room. Still at it, said he, plumping down into his wanton arm, Jen. What a chap you are, a stew. I believe an earthquake might come and knock Oxford into a cocked hat, and you would sit perfectly placid with your books and among the ruins. However, I won't burrow you for long. Three whiffs of a backy and I'm off. What's the news then? said Smith, cramming a plug of bird's eye into his briar with a finger. Nothing very much. Wilson made 70 for the freshman against the 11. They say that they will play him instead of Boudicom, for Boudicom is clean off colour. He used to be able to bowl a little, but it's nothing but half volleys and long leap, long hops now. Medium rights, suggested Smith, with intense gravity which comes upon a vast varsity man when he speaks of athletics. Inclining too fast, with a, with a work from the leg, comes with the arm and about three inches or so, he used to be a nasty wet wicket. Oh, by the way, have you heard about Long Norton? What's that? He's been attacked. Attacked? Yes, he was turning off the high street, and within a hundred yards of the gates of Olds. But who? Ah, that's the rub. If you said what, you'd be more grammatical. Norton swears that he was not human. Indeed, from the scratches on his throat, it would be inclined to agree with him. What, then? Have we come down to spooks? Abercombe Smith puffed his scientific contempt. Well, no, I don't think that is quite the idea either. I'm inclined to think that if any showman has lost a great ape lately, then, and the brute is in these parts, a jury would find a true bill against it. Norton passes that way every night, you know, in the same hour. There's a tree that hangs low over the path, the big elm from Rainey's garden. Norton thinks the thing dropped on him from out of the tree. Anyhow, he was nearly strangled by two arms, which, he says, were as strong and as thin as steel bands. He saw nothing, only those beastly arms that tightened and tightened on him. He yelled his head off nearly, and a couple of chaps came running, and the thing went over the wall like a cat. I never got a fair sight of it the whole time. It gave Norton a shake-up, I can tell you. I tell him it has been as good as a charge as the seaside for him. A garotta, most likely, said Smith. Very possible. Norton says, but we don't mind what he says. The garotta 
had long nails and was pretty sharp at swinging himself over walls. By the way, your beautiful neighbour would be pleased if he heard about it. He had a grudge against Norton, and he's not a man, from what I know, of him to forget his little debts. Hello, old chap. What have you got in your noodle? Nothing, said Smith curtly. He started in his chair, and the look had flashed over his face which comes upon a man who is struck suddenly by an unpleasant idea. You look as if something I had said had taken effect on you on the raw. By the way, you have made an acquaintance of Master B since I last looked in, have you not? Young Monkhouse Lee told me something to the effect. Yes, I know him slightly. He has been up here once or twice. Well, you're big enough and ugly enough to take care of yourself. He's not what I should call exactly a healthy sort of Johnny, though, no doubt. He's very clever and all that, but you'll soon find out for yourself. Lee is alright. He's a very decent little fellow. Well, so long, old chap. I rode Mullins for the Vice Chancellor's pot on Wednesday week, so mind you come down in case I don't see you before. Bovine Smith laid down his pipe and turned stolidly to his books once more. But with all the will in the world, he found it very hard to keep his mind upon his work. It would slip away to brood upon the man beneath him, and upon the little mystery which hung around his chambers. Then his thoughts turned to the singular attack of which Hasty had spoken, and to the grudge which Bellingham was said to owe to the object of it. The two ideas would persist in rising together in his mind as though there was some close and intimate connection between them, and yet the suspicion was dim and vague that it could not be put down in words. Confound the chap, cried Smith, as she shied his books of pathology across the room. He has spoiled my night's reading, and that's enough. If there were no other, why should I steer clear of him in the future? For ten days the medical student confined himself so closely to his studies that he neither saw nor heard anything of either of the men beneath him. At the hours when Bellingham had been accustomed to visit him, he took care to sport his cloak, and though he more than once heard a knocking at his outer door, he resolutely refused to answer it. One afternoon, however, he was descending the stairs when, just as he was passing it, Bellingham's door flew open, and young Monkhouse Lee came out with his eyes sparkling in a dark flush of anger upon his olive cheeks. Close at his heels followed Bellingham, his fat and healthy face all quivering with malignant passion. You fool, he hissed, you'll be sorry. Very likely, cried the other. Mind what I say, it's off. I won't hear of it. You've promised anyhow. Oh well, keep that, I won't speak. But I'd rather little Eva was in her grave once for all. It's off. She'll do what I say. We don't want to see you again. So much Smith could not avoid hearing, but he hurried on, for he had no wish to be involved in their dispute. There had been a serious breach between them, and that was clear enough, and Lee was going to cause the engagement with his sister to be broken off. Smith thought of Hassie's comparison of the toad and the dove, and was glad to think that the matter was at an end. Bellingham's face, when he was in the passion, was not pleasant to look at. He was not a man to whom an innocent girl could be trusted for his life. As he walked, Smith wondered languidly what could have caused the quarrel, and what the promise might be which Bellingham had been so anxious that Monkhouse Lee should keep. It was the day of the sculling match between Hasty and Mullins, and a stream of men were making their way down to the banks of the Isis. The May sun was shining brightly, and the yellow path was barred with the black shadows of tall elm trees. On either side, the grey colleges lay back from the road, the hoary old mothers of mines looking out from their high, mullioned windows at the tide of young life which swept so merrily past them. Black-clad tutors, prim officials, pale reading men, brown-faced straw-hatted young athletes in white sweaters of many-coloured blazers, all were hurrying towards the blue winding river which curves through the Oxford meadows. Abercrombie Smith 
with the intuition of an old oarsman chose his position at the point where he knew the struggle if there were a struggle would come far off he heard the hum which announced the start the gathering roar of the approach the thunder of running feet as the shouts of the men the boats beneath him a spray of half-clad deep breathing runners shot past him and craning over their shoulders he saw hasty pulling a 36 while his opponent with a jerky 40 was a good boat's length behind him smith gave a cheer for his friend and pulling out his watch was starting off again for his chambers when he felt a touch upon his shoulder and found that young monkhouse lee was beside him i saw you there he said in a timid depreciating way i wanted to speak to you if you could spare me half hour the cottage is mine i share it with harrington of kings come in and have a cup of tea i must be back presently said smith i am hard on the grind at present but I'll come in for a few minutes with pleasure. I wouldn't have come out, only Hasty is a friend of mine. So he is a friend of mine. Hasn't he a beautiful style? Munns wasn't in it. But coming to the cottage, it's a little den of a place, but it is pleasant to work in during the summer months. It was a small, square, white building with green doors and shutters and a rustic trellis work porch standing back some 50 yards from the river's bank. Inside the main room was roughly fitted up as a studio, a deal table, unpainted shelves with books and a few cheap oleographs upon the wall. A kettle sang upon a spirit stove and there was tea things upon a tray on the table. Try that chair and have a cigarette, said Lee. Let me pour you out a cup of tea. It's, it's so good of you to come in, for I know that your time is a good deal taken up. I wanted to say to you that if i were you i should change my rooms at once eh? smith sat staring with a lighted match in one hand and his unlit cigarette in the other yes it must seem very extraordinary and the worst of it is that i cannot give my reasons for i am under a solemn promise <laughs> a very solemn promise but i may not go so far as to say that i don't think bellingham is a very safe man to live near I intend to camp out here as much as I can for a time. Not safe? What do you mean? Ah, that's what I mustn't say, but do take my advice and move your rooms. We had a grand round today. You must have heard us, for you came down the stairs. I saw that you had fallen out. He's a horrible chap, Smith. <laughs> that is the only word for him. I have had doubts about him ever since that night when he fainted you remember when you came down i taxed him today and he told me things that made my hair rise and wanted me to stand in with him i'm not straight laced but i'm a clergyman's son you know and i i think there's some things which are quite beyond the pale i only thank god that i found him out before it was too late for he was to have married into my family this is all very finely, said Abercrombie Smith curtly, but either you are saying a great deal too much or a great deal too little. I give you a warning. If there is a real reason for the warning, no promise can bind you. If I see a rascal about to blow up a place with dynamite, no pledge will stand in my way of preventing him. Ah, but I, I cannot prevent him and I can do nothing but warn you without saying what you warn against against bellingham but that is childish why should i fear him or any man i can't tell you i can only entreat you to change your rooms you are in danger where you are i don't even say that bellingham would wish to injure you but it might happen for he's a dangerous neighbor just now Perhaps I know more than you think, said Smith, looking keenly at the young man's boyish, earnest face. Suppose I tell you that someone else shares Bellingham's room. Monkhouse Lee sprang from his chair in uncontrollable excitement. You know then, he gasped. A woman. Lee dropped back again with a groan. My lips are sealed. I must not speak. 
Well, anyhow, said Smith, rising, it is not like that I should allow myself to be frightened out of my rooms, which suit me very nicely. It would be a little too feeble for me to move out of my goods and my chattels because you say that Bellingham might, in some ex unexplained way, do me injury. I think that I'll just take my chance and stay where I am. And as I see that it's nearly five o'clock, I must ask you to excuse me. He bade the young student adieu in a few curt words and made his way homewards through the sweet spring evening feeling half ruffled, half amused, as any other strong, unimaginative man might, who has been menaced by a vague, shadowy danger. There was one little indulgence which Abercrombie Smith always allowed himself, however closely his work might press upon him. Twice a week, on a Tuesday and a Friday, it was invariably custom to walk over the Farring Ford, the residence of Dr Plumtree Peterson, about a mile and a half out of Oxford. Peterson had been a close friend of Smith's elder brother Francis, and as he was a bachelor, fairly well-to-do, with a good cellar and a better library. His house was a pleasant goal for a man who was in need of a brisk walk. Twice a week then, the medical student would swing out there along the dark country roads and spend a pleasant hour in Peterson's comfortable study discussing over a glass of old port the gossip of varsity of the latest developments of medicine or surgery. On the day which followed his interview with Monkhouse Smith shut up his books at a quarter past eight, the hour when he usually started for his friend's house. As he was leaving his room, however, his eyes chanced to fall upon the books of which Bellingham had lent him, and his conscience pricked him for not having returned it. However repellent the man might be, he should not be treated with discourtesy. Taking the book, he walked downstairs and knocked at his neighbour's door. There was no answer, but on turning the handle he found that it was unlocked. Pleased at the thought of avoiding an interview, he stepped inside and placed the book with his card upon the table. The lamp was turned half down, but Smith could see the details of the room plainly enough. It was all much as he had seen it before, the frieze, the animal-headed gods, the hanging crocodile, and the table littered with papers and dried leaves. The mummy case stood upright against the wall, but the mummy itself was missing. There was no sign of any second occupant of the room, and yet he felt as he withdrew that he had probably done Bellingham an injustice. Had he, guilty, had he a guilty secret to preserve? He would hardly leave his door open so that all the world might enter. The spiral stair was as black as pitch and Smith was slowly making his way down its irregular steps when he suddenly consciously when he was suddenly conscious that something had passed in the darkness. There was a faint sound, a whiff of air, a light brushing past his elbow, but so light that he could scarcely be certain of it. He stopped and listened. But the wind was rustling among the ivy outside, and he could hear nothing else. Is that you, Styles? he shouted. There was no answer, and all was still behind him. It must have been a sudden gust of air, for there were crannies and cracks in the old turret, and yet he could almost have sworn that he had heard a footfall by his side. He had emerged into the quadrangle, still turning the matter over in his head, when a man came running swiftly across the smooth cropped lawn. Is that you, Smith? Hello, Hasty. For God's sake, come at once. Young Lee is drowned. Here's Harrington of Kings with the news. The doctor is out. You'll do, but come along at once. There may be life in him. Have you brandy? No. I'll bring some. There's a flask on my table. Smith bounded up the stairs, taking three at a time, seized the flask and was rushing down them with it, when, as he passed Bellingham's room, his eyes fell upon something which left him gasping and staring upon the landing. The door, which he had closed behind him, was now open and right in front of him, with the lamplight shining upon it, was the mummy case. Three minutes ago it had been emptied, he could swear to that. Now it framed the lank body of its horrible occupant who stood grim and stark 
with his black, shriveled face towards the door. The form was lifeless and inert, but it seemed to Smith as he gazed at there still lingered a lurid spark of vitality, some faint sign of consciousness in the little eyes which lurked in the depths of the hollow sockets. So astounded and shaken was he that he had forgotten his errand, and he was still staring at the lean, sunken figure when the voice of his friend below recalled him to himself. Come on, Smith, he shouted. It's life and death, you know. Hurry up, now then, he added as the medical student reappeared. Let us do a sprint. It is well under a mile and we should do it in five minutes. A human life is better worth running for than a pot. And there we go, my friends. And that is the first part of Lot 249 by Sir Arthur Conan. I do hope you enjoy this introduction to a slightly different story for this podcast. Uh, the second part will be out soon, so don't worry. The true horror of what is about to be revealed will be with you soon. I hope you sleep well thinking upon the thing that will scratch upon your window, the black sunken eyes watching you from their coffin, that quick glance that you see through the doorway, is it real or is it not? I hope it doesn't play upon your mind this evening as you go to sleep. Anyway my friends, soon. All that dark horror shall be revealed. So, I hope you do enjoy that. Um, even though in the introduction I did say that the Kickstarter was going live on October the 25th, it's already live. So this this podcast has actually come out later than I was expecting it to. Um, I do apologise about that. So yeah, the Kickstarter is already live. I have written rather a long and large book it would it's turned out to be a lot bigger than all of us were thinking it was going to be so do go over to kickstarter and look at hive mind games eye to the void link in the show notes for the kickstarter or go over to their website again link in the show notes for their website if it's after the kickstarter has finished the book is going to be between like 130, maybe 150 pages long, where we delve into the history and folklore of divination and the the occult natures of it, uh, based upon history and, and real religion, and how we can take these as inspiration for our RPG games. So do go take a look at that. Uh, it's doing quite well. We are fully funded. We funded within five hours of going live on Kickstarter. So that's pretty cool. As we're sitting at the moment, we're about 15, 10, 15 pounds off hitting our first stretch goal. If uh, And we're only just over 24 hours in. We've got an entire month to go. So it'll be really cool if everybody could go check it out. Throw some money at it. It's five pounds for a PDF. £15 for a softback, £20 for a hardback copy of this book. So go check it out. Um, The more money you throw at it, the more work I have to do at delving into the divination in RPGs. So we've got a few possible hidden stretch goals that we have yet to, to release. So, But you've got to back it to get to those levels to find out what they are. But yeah. Um, it's going well. I'm looking forward for it to being out and seeing people's reactions when they see the full thing. There is, again, in the show notes, a link to the free preview chapter, which is the second chapter. It's based on casting and reading, so runes and tarot and and things like that. So uh, that is up for free. It is only a preview chapter. It is not the final chapter so 
uh, go have a look at that. It's on DriveThruRPG. I will again put that link in the show notes so you can go download it for free. Go download it, have a read of it, leave us a review, let us know what you think so we can uh, maybe make it better or, you know, whatever. So, as I say, part two of Lot 249 will be out soon. If you enjoyed this story and want to hear a different story and more stories, let me know. Go follow me on the Twitter sphere that has just been brought by a nut job and uh, where I am at the Drunken Store 1. You can email me at thedrunkenstorytelleruk at gmail.com. Let me know what stories you'd like to hear or what folklore you'd like me to dive into. Go leave me a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And something new that has also happened, uh, I have a Kofi account. Uh, so you can go find me at uh, Kofi, uh, the Drunken Storyteller. Yeah, go find me on Kofi.com slash the Drunken Storyteller. I have a Kofi account. I don't expect anything from it. I just thought it would be funny to post that up there. I don't know why. Um, I don't do social media, as anybody who knows me knows. So, but yeah, there's a Kofi account. Uh, you can throw me a cup of coffee if you want to. Help keep the lights going in this dark, dark time. So, um, there's a link for that in the in the show notes again. Everything's all a link in the show notes. That's how it works. Show notes. Read the show notes. Nobody ever reads the show notes. If you're at this far into the podcast, uh, well done for, re- for, for, for saying this long, for listening to me ramble on about bullshit and ruining the entire vibe of the spooky nature of this episode. And uh, me trying to pilfer like a cup of coffee out of people. All that is left for me to say is... Good night, my friends. <laughs>